I'd like to have you turn to Colossians chapter 2. And I want to remind you, especially those, of course, that have been keeping up with our studies in Colossians, of how the Apostle Paul now is focusing his attention upon the errors of, of Gnosticism, of this philosophical heresy that not only seeks to undermine the truth of the Word of God, but undermine it in such a way of replacing it, replacing the Word of God with these truths that are coming from the world from the traditions of men and not after Christ, not according to what Christ himself has not only done, but what he has said. And as we know, we have a God that doesn't change, but neither does his word. And so many are out to change the word today, to make it say what they want it to say rather than what it means and what it's saying to us in this generation as it has said through all the generations. From the time of the patriarchs and the prophets to the times of the apostles and even to this day, the word of our God has to be lifted high above all things. And so Paul issues a warning to the church in Colossae. And in effect, he is issuing that warning to all of us today because we're dealing with various forms and much more sophisticated forms of Gnosticism. We can call it the emerging church. We can call it the new age influences that are being adapted and adopted in the church today. But it's all the same lie, and it comes from the enemy. And Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, empty deception, hollow deception, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete, ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together, which means he's made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Without any pause whatsoever, the Apostle Paul had aimed his scriptural arsenal on the rapidly growing apostasy that we have called Gnosticism. The philosophy of knowing. But knowing what? And Paul was making it clear that what made this deceptive mixture of man's philosophies, religious legalism, and spiritualistic mysticism dangerous was its seductive satanic aim. It had a target, it had a name, it had a purpose. 
as it does today. And that is to carry into captivity the minds and the hearts of believers in Christ and lead them straightway into slavery. Lead them immediately into slavery. And folks, we need to understand, truth sets us free. Error enslaves us. The words used by Paul were strong, and they were specific. The false teachers weren't out to win converts as much as they were out to kidnap converts from churches. Their purpose was not so much to improve or to upgrade Christianity, but to eventually and fundamentally bring about a total change of the truth and completely cause the abandonment of the faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, their aim was to have people trade truth for error. And it aimed to reject, it aimed to renounce and to replace the truth of God's word. And its modern form continues to accomplish this very aim in many churches today, and, and sadly it has accomplished it in some places. So under that subtopic that we labeled last time as intellectualism, Paul strongly warned the Colossian church of man's philosophies as, as being the means by which Gnosticism would persuade believers to abandon truth for error. Not by anything found in the word of God. Although what we see happening today is pe people taking and changing the word of God through various modern translations of the Bible and, uh, uh, and, and uh, replacing it not with literal translation of words, but with changing of, of, of thought translations, if you will, or with thought translations. And that becomes very dangerous. We don't have the time to go through it today, but one day we will. But it's not found, it's not by anything that is found truly in the word of God, but in the traditions of men. And by the way, we know that we can even take the word of God and begin to build traditions upon certain things in the word and those traditions themselves can become dangerous. But here we're dealing with the traditions of men and bringing about some kind of change within the, the fundamental structure of the word of God in the church, both in Greek and Hebrew philosophies and their religious legalisms. And by the way, while tradition, as, as I said, in the Christian faith is essential, in handing down the truths of Christ and his body, the church, as we learned last time. The traditions of the scriptures is the passing down of the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures and the understanding of the scriptures to one generation to the next. But it has to be said that we are always to be careful not to make certain traditions equal to or surpassing in any way the word of God because the word of God always has to be high. The word of God always has to be above all things. But as for the traditions of men, apart from the divine revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wisest philosopher of the 21st century knows no more about man's origin or destiny than Plato or Socrates did in their time so long ago. They know no more than the, the great philosophers of, of, of the Western world. And they admittedly continue to ponder the unsolvable problems, that's what they call them, the unsolvable problems relating to man's futures or his hopes or his rewards and or punishments if there happens to be some greater being in their mind. But the Gnosticism that was developing in Paul's day, based upon the two philosophic views of two men, Zeno and Epicurus, they were contending for mastery over the minds of men in the Western world when Paul was writing this letter. Those two philosophies can be seen in, this, in these particular terms. Stoicism, 
And I mentioned Stoicism and the Stoics because the Stoics would be the ones that were following after the philosophies of Zeno. And then Epicureanism and the Epicureans. Obviously, developed by a man named Epicurus. To understand how this applies to us, let's consider the understanding, a very basic understanding of the Stoics' view. The Stoics themselves would say this, or Stoicism itself would say this. Live nobly and death cannot matter. Live nobly. Hold your appetites in check. Don't live for the pleasures of the world. Don't live for the pleasures that will make you feel better. Don't live for them. Become indifferent to changing conditions. Don't be lifted up by good fortune or cast down by adversity. The person is more than the circumstances. The soul is greater than the universe. On the other hand, the Epicureans would say this. They would say everything in the world is uncertain. We don't know from where we came and we don't know where we're going. We don't know that after living a brief life, we disappear, I should say we do know, we do know that after living a brief life, we disappear from this scene and it is vain to deny ourselves any present joy or any pleasure in view of possible future ill. So let us eat and let us drink for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicurean philosophy. Let's get the most out of life. Let's live it to the fullest with gusto. Because tomorrow we die. The fact is, and we should know this, Christianity has nothing in common with Epicureanism. Not one thing in common with Epicureanism. That was made clear by Jesus himself, who told us in a parable in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, drink, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thou, thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we realize that the philosophies of this world are really man-based. They're man-focused. In this case, pleasure-focused. But Stoicism was different. And the message of the gospel, actually historically, the message of the gospel did appeal to many Stoics. For example, they, they really uh, appreciated the things that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. When Paul said, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That sounded a little bit like their own little philosophy. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. I train, I strive, I agonize, in other words. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The Stoics appreciated uh, the things that Paul had said to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, when he said, Not that I speak in respect of want, 
For I have learned in, whatever, in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to be without anything and I know how to live with whatever I do have. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And here's something of great importance in comparing this particular Stoicism to the things that Paul was saying. Because while the Stoic might find the fulfillment of his heart's yearning in Christianity, there was and is nothing in Stoicism that the Christian needed, needed then or needs today from Stoicism. Because everything that was and is best in that system, the believer already had and has in Christ Jesus alone. That's the biggest difference, or the biggest difference. Stoicism yearns for this kind of thing, but they yearn for it without Christ. And the fact is, we can deal with anything, whether without or with, because of Jesus Christ. So we don't need Stoicism. And we definitely don't need Epicureanism. So there, there certainly were other lesser philosophical schools, both Greek and Roman, all which sought to draw away disciples to themselves. This is what the church was facing. These kinds of deceptions. The Gnostics included parts of all different schools of thought in their new system. But there was one more point that Paul wanted to add. And that point was this. That which was according to the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Let's look at that for a moment. Go back to verse 8. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Now the false teachings of Gnosticism, as we've said already, were empty. They were hollow. They were deceptive for this other reason. They involved the rudiments of the world. The Greek word for rudiments, stoikeon in the Greek, means one of a row or series, something orderly in arrangement. Now, several meanings were attached to it. For example, the elementary sounds or the elementary letters, such as the ABCs, the one, two, threes. One, two, three. How many are from the 60s here? Okay. I'm just wanting to see if you're awake. All right. The ABCs, the very elemental things. Folks, when did we learn those? We learned them in our homes. Our parents taught those things to us. Very elementary. Keep that in mind. And then there was a second meaning attached to stoicheon, and that is the basic elements of the universe. And even in scripture, we find that that is how it is viewed in, in, in a couple of places. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, where Peter is describing the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements, ah, elements, same word, stoikeon. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation or conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements, stoikeon, shall melt with fervent heat. So there's that second understanding of the word stoikeon or rudiments as the basic elements of the universe, what the universe itself is made of. But there was a third meaning. It was applied to the basic elements of knowledge. Now we're dealing in the philosophical sense. The basic elements of knowledge or the ABCs of some 
system. Even the system that we ourselves have to follow in the church through the word of God. Take, for example, what is written in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul writes, For when for the time you ought to be teachers. He's telling them, in all the time that you have known Christ, you should by now be teachers. But yet you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. The first principles, the word principles, is the Greek word stoikion. Same word as rudiments. As elements, and now as principles, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. That's if to say that you were growing up learning your ABCs and your one, two, threes, and for some reason by the time you got to college, you had to go back to learning your ABCs and your one, two, threes. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I've always had this picture in my mind that, that you know, when, when, when that happens to people in the church that should be growing in the Word of God and even coming to a point where they can be teachers of the Word of God and yet they're still kind of back having milk, that's like saying here's an adult trying to fit into a first grader's uh, desk in school. You don't fit. Yes, I know, I think we're taught sometimes. But that's how it is. Interestingly enough, in ancient Greece, the word stoikion brought forth one more meaning, a fourth meaning. Because it also meant the elemental spirits of the universe. The angels that influenced the heavenly bodies. That's a quote from ancient Greece about the word stoikia. The elemental spirits of the universe, the angels that influence the heavenly bodies. So it was one of the words used in the religious astrology of that day, which by the way, is included in Gnosticism. Gnosticism has many branches. And what we're going to learn also is that in Gnosticism, there are some branches that really don't agree with each other, but they're still there. And as I was considering that, you know how, how Gnosticism is, is, is trying to enter into the church and confuse everybody? Well, that's, of course, the way they do it. They confuse you by so many different little roads and say, but all these roads will converge into one eventually. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like to me the foundations for a one-world religion. Where you can believe in so many other things and, and we can be tolerant of so many other religions except for one, Judeo-Christianity. And I include Judaism in that because of the word of God. But everything else, and notice, notice what's happening in the world today. The, the, the growth, of, uh, the rapid growth of anti-Semitism in the world And the growth of anti-Christianity, even in our own country today. So it was one of the words, the stoikion, used in the religious astrology of that day. And as we'll see later, and we're going to touch upon this uh, soon, but Paul will refer to those practices as well. But it is what the apostle did in putting two prominent words side by side in this verse that we will concern ourselves with. The two words are philosophia and stoikion. Philosophy and rudiments. Philosophia stood for all, the, all of the thinking of the Greek, Roman, and even the Jewish Hellenistic worlds because the Jewish Hellenistic world had its own philosophies. Some of those philosophies actually went on to develop other side uh, religions, so to speak, even in the Jewish faith. So they were represented by the philosophers of Athens, Rome, and Alexandria. 
because there, there was a large Hellenistic group of Jews in Alexandria. Stoicheon was, was used for the basic elements of speech. The very first things that we learned, as I mentioned, the ABCs, the one, two, threes. So my questions to you today is, was Paul actually in verse 8 ridiculing the false teachers? By the way, it's not the first time that we find ridicule in the scriptures. Just read Psalm 2. Paul, was Paul ridiculing the false teachers? Here you talk about all of this great boasting of superior knowledge that you have. And yet you're only offering that which was childish? The rudiments of the world? The elementary principles of the world? The idea that any kind of world philosophy or any kind of human tradition could enhance or improve or upgrade Christianity is utter nonsense. What was being offered wasn't even worthy of serious consideration by the believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was not after Christ. That's the argument that Paul is making here. It was not after Christ. In other words, it was not according to Christ. It was not according to Jesus Christ, who is the Logos, who is the Word of God, in the flesh. Gnosticism, listen, Gnosticism will either leave Christ out altogether, or it will misrepresent him totally. And folks, that's not what we just see only in Scripture. We see it in the church today. Gnosticism will either leave Christ out altogether, that's one of their aims. Or it will misrepresent him completely. Completely misrepresent Jesus. That's why I say to you and I emphasize to you time and time and time again, the word of God never changes. What is an abomination to the Lord in the, book, in, in, in the books of the Torah is an abomination to God today. Yet people want to change all of that to say, well, listen, we live in a different world and we have different lifestyles and we have different ways of doing things. But the word doesn't change. So the misrepresentation of Christ is what we need to be aware of. And every one of our antennas needs to go up every time we hear something that isn't in the word of God being presented from a pulpit today. Now, the Apostle Paul will elaborate of this fact in verses 9 and 10 of Colossians chapter 2. As he points to Jesus, he says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I emphasize bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in Jesus. And here is God's answer, God's answer to whatever weird mysteries the Gnostics might have been promoting at the time. Because the corrective remedy and solution to the cultic mysteries of Gnosticism, because they were into mysteries, we, we've already learned that, uh, the importance of the word mystery to the Gnostics. They had mystery knowledge that you could only have yourself if you followed them, if you followed their steps, if you followed their principles, if you followed their procedures, you could have their wonderful, great knowledge that no one knew, anybody knew about, you know. You had to join their club. That's why I have problems with Freemasonry today. Whereas many of them profess to be Christians, Freemasonry is very much a demonic society. But we're not getting into them today. The corrective remedy and solution to the cultic mysteries of Gnosticism is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. 
which Paul actually writes about to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And remember that any mystery in the scriptures will always be revealed. There was a mystery, but now it's been revealed. So he says in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And here's the revealing of the mystery of godliness. God was made, I'm sorry, God was manifest in the flesh, God was manifest in the flesh. Stop there, and what is Paul saying? Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is deity. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The mystery of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This great, re this, this great revealed truth pulls the rug out from under all Gnostic speculation. Especially the wing of Gnosticism known as docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. Comes from a Greek word that means something that appears to be or something that seems to be. Now, why is this important? Because the idea of docetism is that matter is evil and hence, and we've talked about it before, so I'm just kind of reviewing that. The idea that matter is evil and hence, it is the belief <coughs> that Jesus only seemed to be human and that his human form was an illusion. Remember when I said that they thought that Jesus was like a phantom? They could kind of see him, but, but they, you know, if they try to follow him, they, they wouldn't be able to see any footsteps in the sand or in the ground. He didn't leave any. He was a phantom. May I ask you, was Jesus a phantom? Now, when he had a resurrected body, there were it was a very special body because there were times when he, you know, he could enter into a room without going through the door. But at the same time, once he was in, he said, hey, to Thomas, put your hand here. Jesus ate breakfast with his disciples at the, at, at, at the Galilee. Very special body. The fact is he had a body before and after the resurrection. So docetism is that one wing of Gnosticism that says, well, Jesus wasn't really, you know, flesh because, because of course, that matter is, is evil. That's how they saw it. But we should know this, that Jesus Christ is the source of reality and truth. Jesus Christ is the source of reality and truth, the very presence of God himself. Take note that reality and truth, by the way, the answers to the world and life, reality and truth, are not found in a philosophy nor in human ideas. They are found in a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think for a moment. We have to put on our philosophic hats here. Think for a moment, if you will. If a person... God, because God is a person. If a person, God, really created the world, then the answer to life and creation, truth and reality, are bound to be wrapped up in him, the creator, and not in the world that he made. The answers are in the one who created the world. He is the source to understanding the world. The world is not the source of understanding him. It is true that we can look at the world and we can learn some things about God, yes. But not all that we need to know. Some things maybe, but not the most important things. For example, the world cannot tell us to conquer how to conquer evil and death, not perfectly. 
And therefore, if we seek the truth only in the world, we are going to be left short and incomplete and unfulfilled in error if we're only seeking the world. And thus, we must seek truth and the answer to all things in the person who made all things because he alone knows the whole story. And it was the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of this book, Colossians, that told us who the Creator was by name. Jesus himself. He created all things. And by him all things are held together. All things consist in Christ, who was in the beginning with God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So the wonderful and glorious message of the gospel and of this passage is that God does exist. God does exist. This is the goal of Paul's writing of the book of Colossians. To combat the philosophy of Gnosticism or the philosophies of Gnosticism. He truly exists. God truly exists and he, is, he has revealed himself in his only begotten son, Jesus, who is and always was and always will be the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, of truth and of reality, of life itself in all its origin, in all of its purpose, in all of its meaning, and in all of its destiny. And first of all, all that God is dwells in Jesus Christ. That's our text, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is God in an absolute, in a full and perfect sense. Nothing is left out of Christ as it pertains to the Godhead. Jesus has the full nature and being of God just as God the Father has the full nature of God because he is God. In fact, Paul, again, writing to the Philippians in Philippians 2 verses 5 and 6 says this. He said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, the exact and perfect representation of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's a very clear statement. I don't know where these guys come up with, uh, you know, that say, well, you know, we're not really sure that Jesus was fully God. What? What Bible are you reading? If you're reading it at all. Or are you depending upon the writings of men rather than trusting in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation fully because God wrote it and gave it to us? and stamped himself in it. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which tells us what? He was God. There's no way to argue that point, unless you're an idiot. Obviously there there are many people who have degrees on their walls that are just useful idiots for the enemy. And some of those are teaching in cemeteries, I mean seminaries today. I know that joke gets old, but that's all right. I still like it anyway. They're cemeteries. They're dead. They're dead because they don't look at the truth. They're looking now at their wisdom. That's the Gnosticism of of seminaries today. The Gnosticism of many seminaries today where they say they're going to teach you about God's word. And yet the first thing that they tell you is, well, we're not really sure that it's all God's word. That's some of God's word. Some of God's truths are in the the Bible, but we're not sure that it's all truth. Man, if you start out that way, man, it's like, ugh. I have seen people that have gone into seminary loving the word of God, coming out doubting the word of God. Is that a good seminary? Is that a good place to learn about the Lord? 
What we do here today, this is God's seminary. Not because of me or anybody else. It is because of this, the word of God. We first believe it, trust it, and know it. And we should know it better and get to know it better because in getting to know it better, we get to know him better. I want you to know him better. God the Father and God the Son have the same being, the same nature, and that is of God. The word fullness, and we've dealt with the word fullness before, the word pleroma, means that not a single part of God's nature is lacking in the nature of Christ. That is how full of the Godhead Jesus is bodily. Uh, Jesus has bodily. The word dwelleth now. Beautiful word in the Greek. Katoike is the Greek word. It means to be at home. It means to be permanently settled and present. Wow, I love that. For in him, in Jesus, dwells. is at home and permanently settled and present, dwells in him. All this fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, in his body, in who he is, all of it. This tells us that the fullness of God has always dwelt in Christ, even before he came to earth, and that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ when Jesus was walking on the earth in a human body, and that the fullness of God was not just a temporary gift to Christ Jesus. It wasn't like the Gnostic belief that, well, Jesus had, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't the Christ until he got baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him, and at that moment he became the Christ. But when he died on the cross... My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And he dies and he gave up the spirit. Well, then the spirit leaves and then he's no longer the Christ. That is a lie of the, uh, the devil. That is a lie straight out of hell. Jesus is always the Christ because he's always full of the fullness of God and the nature of God and the being of God because he is God. John 1 verse 14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory that he had before he came, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He had it before, he had it after. He had it during. And even on the cross, and even in the tomb, how do we know that? Because you cannot separate who he is. From who he was and will always be. He's always the Christ, always the anointed one, always the Messiah, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 of John 1 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He's declared him by who he is and who he was and what he was and what he projected in his life when he walked on this earth. And then, of course, John. And by the way, the apostle John dealt with, uh, dealt with the Gnostic heresies just as much as Paul did. For we see that he writes in 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Now notice, John, you know, the apostles were no docetists. They weren't looking at somebody that seemed in front of them. He says, we've seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, our hands have touched, our hands have embraced of the word of life, the logos of life, Jesus himself. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. For they both have the nature and being of God because they are God, one God in three persons.
And secondly, the believers in Jesus Christ are complete in him. Verse 10. And you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. Believers in Jesus Christ are complete in Jesus. The Greek word for complete, pepleromenoi, means to be made full. It means just to be made full. That's a full word too in Greek. Pepleromenoi. It means to be made full. The Greek actually says, this is how it is in Greek, in him you are full. In him you are full. When a person truly believes and partakes of Jesus Christ, he receives the fullness of Christ. It is not like the Gnostic heresies or any other philosophic uh, uh, group that would say, okay, well, we're going to give you a little bit of truth, and we're going to give you a little bit of more truth, and then a little bit more of truth, and a little bit more of truth, and then you, know, then you can begin to grow and get above everybody else. We'll give you a little bit of truth. You know how much truth you receive when you come to Christ? When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You receive all of him. Every bit of him. That's the difference between Christianity and all of these philosophies of the world. And just what is the fullness of Christ which we believers receive? Well... We could be here another couple hours dealing with that from the Gospels and from the writings of the Apostles. So let me give you just a little bit. And then we'll add a little bit more next time. But I want, to, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. We'll start there because there are four important things that we receive from having Jesus Christ in our lives. It says, but of him... Are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us? He is of God made unto us, for us, these four things. Wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And though we're just scratching the surface on this point, let's just consider this in, in closing, these four things. There are a lot more. But Paul puts it in, one, in this one sentence, in this one verse, these four things. Wisdom. He is the wisdom of God for us. Wisdom means that we understand God. Not, not as fully as we'd like to because we're growing in that each and every day as believers. We have the fullness of Christ, but we grow more and more in our knowledge of him as we study his word, as we pray, as we read his word. But wisdom means that we understand God. And at the same time, we also understand the world and we understand man. Because now we can understand what the world is in contrast to the kingdom of God, which we are now citizens of. And we can understand man because when we were in the world, we were sinners. And we were blinded to the truth. The enemy kept us pretty well away from the truth of the, of the scriptures and the word of God and the, the understanding of who we we're supposed to be in Christ. Kept us pretty far away from it. But Jesus has become our wisdom so that we can understand God, the world, and man. The, ori the origin, the purpose, and the end of creation, the very goal of creation was for us to be with God forever. Jesus has become righteousness for us. That righteousness means that we understand the evil in this world. We didn't understand before. You know, before we used to be in the world and, uh, you know, we would make fun of people who believed in God and in heaven and we would say, ah, oh, listen, I want to party. I want to party when I die. I'm going to party in hell with all my buddies and friends. Maybe you said that yourself. I didn't, but I did. <laughs> but I acted like it sometimes. But but do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand that that I did, that attitude? Oh yeah, 
yeah, man, we're going to party in hell. No, you're not. You won't be able to see anybody. You'll be in constant torment. That's not partying. This is the kind of thing that the enemy wants to put into people's minds. Kind of help us to brush these ideas along, but with righteousness now. Because Christ is our righteousness, it means that we understand the evil in this world, both sin and death. We understand it now. That we know the only way to attain righteousness is through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in our righteousness, but his righteousness that we put on. It's been made available to us. And yet we are to live righteously and godly in this present age. Because Jesus is coming soon. And we need to be ready. And Jesus has become our sanctification. And he's, been, and he's become sanctification for us. What is sanctification? It comes from the word that, 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 that means to sanctify or to set apart. We are to be set apart from the world, set apart unto Christ. Sanctification means that we have set our lives apart unto God to live for him and to serve him. That's what we have been set apart to do. It's not about us, and it's not about what we can achieve or what we can accomplish or what we can gather together and have in this life. As those who, who preach that abundance in this life is, you know, we should all have it, and if we don't have it, then something's wrong with our faith. That's hogwash, and it's not biblical. As we heard Paul say before, I know how to be abased and live with nothing, and I know how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus Christ has become our redemption. He has become redemption for us. And redemption means that we have been saved from corruption, saved from death, and given eternal life. That's redemption. He has bought us back from the enemy. And he paid the price of his blood for us. He shed his blood for the remission of our, uh, from our sins. So we as believers have received the fullness of Christ's nature and have become new creatures in Christ. We have received the fullness of Christ's nature. We have that. Not to boast to others that we're like God or that we are little gods. As those who, again, misinterpret the word of God into thinking that, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're children of God, therefore we're little gods. Don't be stupid. Don't be idiotic. Not you, but the ones that believe that. Unless you believe it, you need to change right away. That's not what the Bible says, and it's not what the Bible teaches. There's only one God, and we're not him. But we have been given his nature. Listen to the words of Peter in 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The knowledge of God. Not the knowledge of this world. Not the knowledge of the mysteries of the Gnostics. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power is given unto us, all things. Do you notice the little word all? That's a big word. All things that pertain unto life and godliness. Everything that pertains to our life on this earth and our godliness as we are to live for Christ, all things have been given unto us through the knowledge of him. There's knowledge again. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and to virtue. Those particular words brought many Stoics to Christ because they realized that they had the virtues, but they didn't have the Christ who gives us the eternal glory and virtues. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. And by the way, I'm not talking about little promises and a little 
a little container that looks like a little bread thing that has little promises, one, one promise at a time that you pull out and you read. You can barely see it because so, they're so small. Uh, th th those aren't the exceeding great and precious promises. This is the exceeding great and precious promises from Genesis to Revelation. That by these, you might be partakers of the divine nature. Partaking in all that God is and all that Christ is and all that Christ has done and all that Christ will do and all that Christ will be as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. For we are heirs with Christ, join heirs with Christ of these things. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, escaped the corruption. Lastly, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are passed away. Your old thoughts, your old opinions, your, your old philosophies, the old way of doing things, They're passed away. I like that phrasing because we use that when we talk about somebody who has died. We say, well, they've passed away. Paul uses that for this very reason, to tell us that all of those old things that we were and had when we were in the world, they're dead. They're dead now. And our life, as we'll see in the book of Colossians, is hid in Christ. But he is a new creature, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You can't be new if you try to live by the philosophies of the world. The world is dying, the world is fading out. It is becoming more corrupt, as God said it would be, from the fall of man. And wearing away. We can attribute it to the second law of thermodynamics, but that's, that's, just, that's just the scientific side of things. Which, by the way, God made for us to understand how things work. Not the way the world makes it. it tries to, you know, the world tries to convince us that it's science to say that the world was created by a couple of flying amoebas in the, in, the, in the sky and they collided together and then all of a sudden everything started forming like we see it over billions of years. Science, true science would say, okay, well, where's the empirical evidence? In other words, that's what science is based upon. Things that you can see and test. This is all just fairy tale. But they look real good in their white robes, you know, talking about it with their glasses. And Jesus said, here's the truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's the way it is. It's never changed. I'm burdened by the ones who believe that, uh, you know, there's this blending of creation and evolution. Say, well, now God created the heavens and earth, but, but he probably did it over millions of years. But the text is real clear. He created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days. It takes more faith not to believe in God, and it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to, to believe in God, doing it as the power that he is. Okay, I'm just covering up some time here. So, so I was done a while back. So. But I love you all so much, I want to be with you a little bit longer. So, Anyway, 
That's where we are. And that's where we're going. And we're actually going to cover more ground next week, next time than, uh, than we did today. But it's, it's important for us to lay these foundations down because we're dealing with these things in the church today. And we can't say, well, you know, that's that church, but we're, you know, we're going to say in the word. No, we've got to talk to people. We've got to let them know what the truth is. And it's sad that we have to do that to people in the church as much as people that are not in the church that need Jesus because they're blind and because they're dead in trespasses and sins. So it isn't that we make ourselves better than anybody. No, it humbles us. It humbles us to believe what we believe today out of the word of God. But I'm glad to be humbled by it. Because this flesh is nothing. But Jesus is everything. So keep that in mind. That we need to live our lives for Christ at all times. Not change the rules. But live for Christ.